The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning to you. It's Friday. You're watching Scorebox with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. U.S. stocks rebound, breaking a three-day losing streak. The Dow has its best session since March, but Wall Street remains on track to nurse steep weekly losses. Two sides of the story for Disney. The media giant breezes past earnings expectations as theme parks throw open their doors, but a slowdown on the streaming side sends shares lower. This quarter's numbers were exactly as we projected internally. So uh, no, no disappointment here. Alibaba revenue surged, but a massive antitrust fine sends the e-commerce giant to a surprise loss. It's first as a public company. And in geopolitical news, Israeli forces hit targets in Gaza from the air and the ground amid rising fears of an incursion into the territory and all-out war. The Colonial Pipeline is back online after the ransomware attack. While NBC News learns the company paid nearly $5 million to the cybercriminals. So, very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Good morning, my friend. Good morning to you. Howard. Good morning, Karen Cho, listening in yes. as well. Yes. Uh, let's pick up and talk about the US markets then, because we had a very interesting session as these markets rebounded yesterday. So, as you can see, we got a, a pickup uh, on the markets with the Dow and the S&P up over 1% here. I think the most obvious point to make at this stage, though, is that the NASDAQ underperformed against the other indices and that suggests that we still have some reticence around these tech valuations within the tech sector the semiconductors actually did all right uh, and we saw the um, small and mid-cap stocks bouncing back strongly and we were having a conversation weren't we um, earlier on uh, discussing the nature of this rebound. Yes, we were. And what's very interesting is the challenge, I think, for anybody to go extremely negative as we look into what is ultimately an economic expansion that is well liquefied and well well supported <laughs> at a consumer level. No, absolutely. And, and, and as you say about the buybacks as well. But you carry yeah. on yours because I want to add a couple of points in a minute. So I don't want to steal your thunder at this early oh, stage. Oh, no, don't worry, don't worry. It's a whole potpourri of issues <laughs> that I think we need to throw in. Let's have a look at the week to, to date then and just show you uh, how the markets have performed uh, through this early part of May. And as you can see, across the week as a whole, uh, the message is that we were negative uh, for the week here, which I would say then you need to take a look at some of the charts. Just keep an eye on the slightly longer term trend for these markets, because the last thing you want to do is to be chasing into a market that is continuing to print lower highs, because that would imply that the momentum is just coming out of the equity market trade at the moment, even as we have a, an economic expansion taking place. And there are those out there who would say the reason for that is because money is being diverted into economic activity away from chasing higher highs in risk assets. But whatever argument you choose to justify what's taking place in the markets, 
just be aware that even as we had that rebound yesterday, it didn't put us back above the plimsoll line in terms of the week-to-date sell-off. Uh, tech then, let's go back to the tech and just drill into some of the stocks and just see uh, how those played out here. And I think what's notable here is that um, those businesses that we uh, traditionally think of as having uh, longevity in the tech space and solid product, Microsoft, Apple, 1.7%, uh, 1.6%. In a sense, it tells you that I think that there was a quotient of investors who were looking for some safety in the technology space and recognizing that these two companies are in two very interesting parts of the market where they are able to develop incremental profit growth. Netflix, I think, is fascinating just in the context of the Disney numbers, which seem to reconfirm this trend away from streaming services. And again, the subscriber numbers for Disney were not what the market was expecting. And um, obviously, Netflix gave us a, an early hint about that uh, a week or so ago. The week-to-date trade, as far as those technology companies, I think, uh, just reconfirming some of the trends that we've been pointing out here. Um, let's talk about SoftBank. Um, the CEO, Masayoshi-san, has downplayed any concerns over the tech sector, telling CNBC the underlying businesses are strong. I think it's just a um, volatility based on the uh, people's view on long-term interest and uh, some inflation and interest rate may go up. It's not the change in the company's uh, performance. Uh, the, the fundamentals is very strong. Uh, our companies are all growing, tech companies are all growing. They have a record high uh, profitability and so on. Uh, it's just that the people's, people's view on the, the long-term interest uh, rate and uh, uh, just a cyclical thing. It's no fundamental change. Okay, so so Jeff laid it out beautifully, I, I think as well. But but here's the thing, Jeffrey Cutmore. This time last week, when I was in Scotland, in magnificent city of Edinburgh, you asked a question. I heard you all the way from Edinburgh, and you asked a question: What do the markets want from the payroll? I remember you saying uh, you know, they want a good number or bad number, blah blah blah. Well, I, I want to take it on a, a different stage because the numbers yesterday. There were two key numbers yesterday. But guess what you did out there in Market World? You put your blinkers on, or you you went to the candy trough if you're in a you know candy trough. It's pick a mix for you and I in our generation. Let me just go down to Woolies and the pick a mix. Well, that's what a candy trough is. You pick the ones you like rather than getting a whole gamut. And that's what you, ladies and gentlemen, did. Because do you remember when you were panicking 24 hours earlier? Do you remember when the VIX was shooting up to 27 or 24 hours? And you were, oh my God, we're so worried about CPI. We're terrified about CPI. And then I said to you after that, I said, well, have a look at PPI. That's going to be interesting. But do you know what you, ladies and gentlemen, did out there? You're like, la, la, la. We're not looking at PPI. We're not, we've got our blinkers on. I don't know much about horses, but I think you keep put your blinkers on uh, to kind of cut out all the other visions we'll have you for an horse. And, and the fact of the matter is, your PPI, exactly, PPI was up 6.2%, 6.2%, 4.1% So it's pretty much an echo of what you all panicked about on your CPI, you saw on your PPI, but you've done a whole day of panicking. So you thought, do you know what I'll do? I'll concentrate on the jobless figures. I'll ignore the PPI. I'm going for jobless figures. Uh, but the problem with your analysis there is, the jobless figures were fantastic. They were the best since March 2020. They were the best since the pandemic, yeah? But surely, if you have the best jobless figures on a weekly basis, that is an inflationary story in itself. So then, the same thing you worried about on Wednesday, you saw again on Thursday and completely ignored. 
rational markets. Anyway, for all the reasons Jeff was talking about, with the liquefaction, is it, or of the juice of the market? High levels of liquid. I like liquid. Yeah, Yeah, anyway, all that was in there, and that's what I think he's spot on about. And Karen's going to come to it in a moment. So let me have a quick look. I'll run through these now. Uh, 1.65 is where your 10-year yield was, having knocked on the door of 170 at one point. Dollar crosses as well. Well, of course, your dollar's had a a, a substantial rally off its lows. But, I mean, week to date, it's only up 0.5 of 1% as well. Um, That's on the dollar index. You'll see the pound, which was uh, 141 in the hours after um, what was seen as a benign result in the Scottish elections, although I don't think it was anything of the sort, but it's a longer term story. Uh, 1.4043 as well. The VIX, and I've mentioned this once or twice in my life as well, it was down 16% yesterday. There you go, 16.2, but still week to date is up 16%. I'll show you the Russell 2K as well. This one is also down significantly on the week to date, uh, down 4.43. Now, I've mentioned horses. <clears throat> and someone who knows a thing or two about horses, you used to be a, a trackside reporter, didn't you? <laughs> Occasionally, I, I'd be pulled off my finance beat uh, because it was very similar circles. Those who uh, work the stock markets also seem to be the biggest you horse You know a thing or two about uh, gambling on horses, don't you? Anyway. <laughs> you know a thing or two about gambling on horses, I do, don't and you? you- you're very right, Steve. You do put the blinkers on the horse so it doesn't get distracted and doesn't start looking to see what the other horses are doing around it. And it does have that single focus on getting past the finishing post first. But uh, as we know with markets, it's a continual journey. There's no end point, is there? So it's slightly different when it comes to you know what you're aiming for. And I think this week there's been a lot of stewing over those inflation numbers. And I did see a report that again crossed yesterday as uh, the numbers were again just uh, pulled apart in all different ways. And data track research was pointing out that there was this huge component impact from used car and truck prices, which is effectively because of the chip shortage and the comparables meant there's outsized contribution. So if you just stripped out that effect, you had much more market-friendly numbers, 3.6% on the headline, 2.3% on the core. And I think that's what's been happening. A lot of investors have just gone back over these numbers and said, well, what's the relevance here? Just how transitory are these numbers actually going to be if we we take some of these anomalies out. So I, I think that's been happening in the last 24 hours or so. But let's get some more thoughts. Uh, Starwood Capital Group Chairman and CEO Barry Sternlich says he has long-term concerns over the US economy, telling CNBC the government is suppressing interest rates. But the billionaire investor sounded more optimistic on Europe, saying he expected further upward price pressure once the block opens up. Well, let's take a look at uh, what we were seeing across some of the European markets over the course of the week. You just saw the performances for the Dow uh, fall, what, of just over 2.1% for the Dow. By comparison, across in Europe, uh, we have had uh, similar sized falls for the FTSE. That's been a market that's run aggressively in uh, recent weeks. So it's come off the most. And the oil and gas trade was quite a pound yesterday. The other market's much more resilient, as you can see on the DAX and the CAC, one and a half odd percent near near on. So it is a pullback, but not to uh, the tune of the, the Dow and nowhere near the NASDAQ, of course different makeup of stocks and uh, the resilience is pretty evident on the periphery. And don't forget the IBEX in uh, Spain and the 
FTSE MIB in Italy, two of the markets that investors have been looking over in recent weeks. So only down a half of a percent, uh, which does also set the scene for the sort of trade we may witness today and what sort of bounce back could be in store. Let's take a look at those Asian markets. We have seen a little bit of recovery in the Friday trading session already uh, across in the markets. And again, what goes down aggressively does tend to also bounce back more aggressively. And you've seen that expressed through the Japanese stock market uh, over the course of the trading session, 2.2 plus percent on stocks in Tokyo. I was mentioning yesterday just how aggressive the fall has been this month, uh, so much so that we'd taken out all of the previous month's gains and taken us right back to January levels. But other markets, uh, the balance are similar to about one odd percent is what we're seeing on some of those Chinese markets uh, and across to Hong Kong. Let's take a look at the week to date then, uh, that Japanese stock market uh, battling two different effects, the, the rise of coronavirus infections, but also what you're witnessing in terms of the, the technology impact, uh, big tech stocks on that index and uh, the valuation reassessment uh, I- impacting that market in particular. So 4% over the week, and that's in the range of the NASDAQ, as you can see, and uh, far exceeds what you have witnessed in other markets, including the Dow. The other markets, though, China uh, actually trading positive for the week. So in contrast to that sogginess you're seeing, and Hong Kong, uh, a lot of tech components there too, but down 2.2%, very similar range to the Dow, Jeff. Karen, terrific. Thanks so much for that. Mike Gallagher joins us, Managing Director for Macro and Strategy at Continuum Economics. Mike, very simple question here. We were told that a a little bit of inflation is quite good for companies um, and corporates who want to get some pricing power. Uh, We were told that inflation is what central banks want. Um, Why is the uh, equity market then becoming a little wobbly around these inflation prints? I think it's um, a little bit too much of a good thing. Um, you're certainly right that um, a bit of inflation is sort of helpful in terms of corporate earnings. But the problem is, um, in terms of Fed policy, um, if the Fed are wrong and the um, inflation rise isn't just purely transitory, then um, the market, particularly the bond market, um, will be demanding that the uh, the Fed move somewhat uh, earlier. And that's likely to put further upward pressure on um, long-term yields. We're not at that point yet. I think if you look at the breakdown of uh, the the data, I think the Fed's narrative will remain that we've got transitory inflation. And I think the bulk of the market will believe that. But there's um, an increasing minority of people that fear that the Fed have got it wrong and that um, there's going to be too much inflation and that um, over the next couple of years that the Fed are going to have to tighten more than they plan. Some ranges, Mike. What do you think the straw is that will break the camel's back here? Because as you point out, the Fed is insistent. It's right. This is transitory. How many successive prints of 4% or so would we need to see on CPI before we can seriously think about the Fed reversing course on tapering? I think the critical numbers are are actually um, the monthly CPI and particularly the the monthly um, core PCE numbers. Um, And I think we'll be looking at those closely, the market looking at those closely, because that gives us a sense of underlying inflation. Um, I think the year on year figure is perhaps a little bit misleading and the market generally accepts it's a bit elevated at the uh, the moment and and will will reduce um, later in the uh, the year. And I think we need to see a couple of months of uh, figures. Um, And what that means is that the, the June FOMC meeting, which is the big meeting um, on the 15th, 16th of June, is likely to see the Fed maintaining this kind of communication 
that uh, it's transitory inflation, be patient, we're not in a rush. Um, the crucial meeting, I think, probably comes in terms of the September FOMC meeting, um, where the Fed may have to start talking about uh, tapering. Um, so th those are the kind of numbers that we're looking at. But then also, I think the market is genuinely looking at um, a very big cross-section of, uh, of data as well. So commodity prices, for example, are, are off somewhat uh, today um, because of um, uh, Chinese uh, policymakers trying to cool the commodity uh, further. Um, and we'll also be looking at the labor market, the breakdown in terms of um, the consumer trends as, uh, as well in the U.S., Morning to you. What's going on at the Fed with the communication? Because it just seems so binary at the moment. They are saying it's transitory and that's the end of the debate at the moment as well, where those of us in the market who are just asking the questions, and there's some really important people way above my pay grade who are asking questions about it as well. Some really top people just saying, surely it's a bit more nuanced than that. Uh, and I had a correspondent who, again, a very smart person who was saying, look, the fact that every single regional um, governor agrees with the policy, it all sounds a bit, well, in his words, a bit cult-like. Uh, at the moment, I, everyone, we've never had every single one of the regional governors agreeing totally in public as well. Do you think there's something going on where they're just so afraid of the alternative? I, I think that it's managing communication. So, um, you know, the, the, the issue with modern day central banking is that you, you follow a certain line until you actually say, well, now we've actually changed course. Um, and I th think they don't want to sort of um, have a, a debate uh, too early about uh, tapering or what follows, because then the market will say, what, are you going to taper at the next meeting? Um, uh, and I think that uh, debate will occur in the, uh, the autumn, um, but it's too early for the Fed to sort of accept um, that. The Fed do have flexibility in that ultimately, if they decide to taper, they could taper in six months rather than nine or 12 months. And additionally, we do know that uh, ultimately, you know, the Fed could raise rates a bit quicker than um, the current expectations of three, four or five hikes between 2023 and 2024. Mike, you were pointing out that you're watching the high yield bond market uh, very closely as a result. And you, you pull out some links there. I think it's fascinating because this is one area that is meant to outperform as the dust starts to settle on the back of a crisis. So it could be naturally an area where bond investors are playing, picking up some of those fallen angels that have been impacted by the events around coronavirus. What sort of warning label would you attach to high yield at this point? I think a fairly high um, uh, warning, really. So, I mean, it's interesting in the, that the, the Fed do a financial stability uh, review uh, and they had a lot of concern that high yield spreads versus U.S. Treasuries are just too narrow by historical circumstances. Um, you know, so we're, we're just too sort of uh, tight. And then absolute high level, uh, absolute high yield levels um, are too low as well. So there is a genuine risk that um, if we see a shakeout in the high yield market, which is a genuine risk because people have been hunting for yield, um, that that spills over to the equity market somewhat. So um, money managers look at the, um, uh, the yield on high yield versus the earnings yield on the, uh, the S&P 500. Um, and if you see a particularly noticeable movement in high yield, it, it can uh, spill over to equity sentiment as well. 
So that that's for us is uh, one of the potential triggers for a deeper correction in the U.S. equity market, um, along with bond volatility. We don't necessarily think that that's going to occur in the next couple of months, but we think there's a genuine risk of a of deeper correction up to 10% in the autumn as the Fed starts to talk about tapering and the market um, actually sees yields lifting. So we're looking for 10-year yields to over 2% in the US by the end of the year. Mr. Gallagher, nice to see you again, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Mike Gallagher is Managing Director, Macro and Strategy at Continuum Economics. Singapore is set to tighten COVID restrictions on May 16th. Uh, what's that, Sunday? Uh, due to a recent rise in cases, services such as indoor dining will be halted, whilst people will be limited to meeting up in only groups of two. Uh, the measures will remain in place until June 13th. Singapore and Hong Kong authorities have also warned there is a, quote, high chance the travel bubble between the two cities will not go ahead on May 26th as planned. Coming up on the show, the Colonial Pipeline resumes operations week on from a crippling ransomware attack. But at what cost? We'll have the latest next. And for more on the Volatile Week on Markets, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The Israeli army says it has deployed ground troops, launching artillery and airstrikes into Gaza. A military spokesperson clarified the attack was not a ground invasion into the Strip. The Israeli advance marks an escalation of the five-day conflict that has killed at least 103 Palestinians. Rocket fire from Hamas also continued, with seven Israelis losing their lives. The UN Security Council meets on Sunday to discuss the violence, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has struck a defiant tone, warning, quote, in putting down rioters, one needs to use a lot of force. NBC's Molly Hunter has more. Tonight, the Israeli Air Force lighting up the sky, pounding the Gaza Strip, while the militant group Hamas has fired almost 2,000 rockets from Gaza into Israeli territory, some even breaking through the Iron Dome defense system. American-Israeli Maya Danin in Herzliya near Tel Aviv runs to her bomb shelter as soon as she hears sirens. We all feel really safe in here. In all, seven Israelis have been killed, including a child and a soldier. But in Gaza, Palestinians have nowhere safe to run. 12-year-old Bara calls out, Daddy. His father and brother killed Tuesday. Today, he told us our lives are totally changed. More than 100 Palestinians have been killed, including 27 children. And now the violence is spilling into the streets, a challenge for Israel not seen for two decades. It's neighbor versus neighbor in mixed Israeli cities between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Israeli residents. An Israeli ultra-nationalist mob beating an Arab driver unconscious. You're talking about uh, uh, an armed population 
they are protected by the police. So, of course, scary. I have two kids. Tamar Nafar is a Palestinian resident of the city of Lod, tonight under military curfew. As the sun went down today, Muslims marked the end of Ramadan. Heartbroken families in Israel and in Gaza bearing their dead, with no end in sight. And right now, Israel is attacking Gaza not only in the air, but on the ground with tanks and artillery. Molly Hunter, NBC News, London. Later in the show, we'll be live in Tel Aviv with our NBC colleague Martin Fletcher. That is coming up at 9.30 CET. Rightio, let's have a look at Brent. Uh, Brent's really interesting. Uh, yesterday when the market rallied, it didn't rally with the market and actually had a pretty tough day. Brent and WTI, let me get you the numbers, down 34 and 3.3% for WTI and Brent respectively yesterday. They were lower today, but have uh, just clawed back from the lows of the session. Now, one of the big stories, of course, in this sector over the last week has been the Colonial Pipeline. Well, it's back online a week after a ransomware attack brought the 5,500-mile system to a close. However, Colonial says it will take several days before supply chains return to normal. Meanwhile, a U.S. official has told NBC News that Colonial agreed to pay the ransomware attackers some $5 million, which just harks back to what we've said previously on the show, that unfortunately that is the quickest way out of it for many companies. Uh, speaking to our colleagues stateside, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete uh, Buttigieg warned of the challenges facing critical infrastructure in the United States. In the United States, a lot of our critical infrastructure uh, is operated either by private actors, right? This is a good example. This was a cyber attack on a private company operating and, uh, and owning this pipeline. Uh, or it's municipal or other local government units, right? The federal government does not actually own and operate all or, or even most of our critical infrastructure in this country. And what that means is we're only as strong as our weakest links. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi has waived his €115,000 salary as he launches the country's economic recovery from the pandemic. The Prime Minister has released his tax returns, a mandatory move for Italian politicians, revealing he made over €580,000 in 2019 and receives two lucrative state pensions. Not a lot of money, is it? Uh, what, the... No, no, not the 500000 No, no, the, the, the salary. To you, maybe not. The salary. The salary of one man. <laughs> Go on. The sal- <laughs> I'm done now. You've kippered yeah. me up there. Uh, the 115,000 euro salary right. for a prime minister of one of the most important economies in the world. Yes. A member of the G7. I'm just saying, and, and that brings back, it's great with the next story, actually, yes. but it just brings back into, and I, like, I know everyone always moans about MP salaries, but mm. actually, if you had better salaries and better pay for state officials, then mm. I actually think you'd get a better quality of individual applying for the job. Well, that is the And argument. I'm not saying Draghi's not great quality. I right. mean, he's, he's a rare beast, but what right. I'm saying is, by and large, your MPs are, are a rum bunch, aren't they? Well, well, that is the argument. And of course, there is the legacy, I think, from uh, the whole aspect of this should be about public service and a call because you want to serve the people, people for the greater good. Pay the bills. And that came from a legacy, I think, where it was the landed classes, ultimately, who so were that, making the decisions. So they had a private yeah. pension or private support, Spot on. means of support. So it didn't matter how much they were paid. That was a nominal amount. Yeah, but this is a man who is, let's be honest, economic, whether you agree with his monetary policy or not, he's a, he's a pretty strong character in this. And yeah. he was at Goldman Sachs. I mean, yeah. if he was at Goldman's, he would be earning, if he was still there, several million dollars a year, undoubtedly, yes. really. You've that kind of ilk. And yet you go to the public service, you're earning 115,000 euros. I think the private public sector debate needs 
to be handled sensibly because too many people get all worked up about it. So, oh, compared to the average salary, it's yes. not a lot of money. But you have a vast amount of responsibility when you have that role as well. I think it should come with a higher salary. Yeah, I, and I think it's a very active debate in Italy, which is why they have been reducing the number of senators uh, that yeah. they have as part of the programme because, you know, you, you pay less, but you pay more to each one. Anyway, uh, former British Prime Minister David Cameron has told a parliamentary inquiry he was paid, quote, far more as a part-time advisor for the now insolvent Greensill Capital than as leader of the UK. However, he said he was not motivated by money when he sent more than 50 messages to government and Whitehall ministers seeking to secure rescue funding for Greensill during the onset of the COVID crisis. Cameron insisted he didn't break any rules by lobbying ministers, but admitted he should have used more formal channels. What I did at the time of economic crisis was put to the government what I genuinely believed to be a good idea for how to get money into the hands of small businesses and get their bills paid early. There are lessons to learn and lessons for me to learn. And in future, the single formal email or formal letter um, would be appropriate. But okay. it was a particular, I think it's, it's easy to forget now just what a sort of time of economic shock it was. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.